Please have your Bibles open at Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at those verses that Thomas read for us. One of the most cutting insults you might receive as a Christian is to be called a legalist. Wouldn't you agree? You're a legalist. What do I mean by that word? Uh, A legalist basically is somebody who is using God's law as a means by which they show themselves good. I can keep God's law, therefore I will be accepted by him. Um, And they try and implement God's law upon other people in very restrictive and binding ways that, that the law wasn't meant for. Legalism. And there's not very many people who would call themselves a legalist. I'm probably certain there is nobody here who would put their hand up and say, yes, that's me, I am a, I am a legalist. My, my whole confidence is in my obedience to the law. And, you know, I don't even think the Pharisees would have described themselves in that way. And that's the danger of legalism. It, there are many people who are tempted by, to fall into legalism. And they don't necessarily realize that they, they're doing it. Even the Apostle Peter was caught in this trap. If you read the letter of Paul to the Galatians, he is not depending upon Christ's righteousness for his salvation, but he's depending upon his own restrictions and the way he eats or who he doesn't eat with. And Paul has to rebuke Peter to his face. Legalism is a subtle trap and it can catch us all so easily. And so wherever we're at in the Christian life, we need to be careful to ask the question, how can I spot whether I am a legalist? How can I spot whether I'm falling into that trap of trying to prove myself worthy to God? And you know, it's not just believers who fall into this trap, but unbelievers as well. Whether they're they're concerned about God's acceptance or not, you'll hear many people talk about being good enough, uh, being a morally good person, and that that moral goodness that they have is enough to get them through life, and they don't need any other input from outside. And really that's just another form of legalism, using their own works, their own actions to prove themselves as good enough that they don't need any help from anywhere else. How do you tell if you're a legalist? In Mark chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we heard a few weeks ago that this chapter, really, the summary of the chapter is showing us the confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus. And Mark recounts it so that we can understand how it was that Jesus eventually came to be so vehemently rejected by the religious leaders. But the passage isn't just about how the Pharisees are hating Jesus. We also see in these passages how Jesus is responding to them. And his response is designed to help them see their own sin, this situation that they're in. And so as we look at the way Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, whose legalism has become so obvious and explicit that it's hard to miss, I hope there'll be a lesson here for us today about how we assess whether in our own lives and in our own response to the gospel, we are ourselves becoming legalists. Let's think about how Jesus responds to the Pharisees then. Um, In verse 18 to 23, we start with this question that that is brought to Jesus about fasting. And the question on its own seems fairly innocent. If you take it totally out of context, uh, they basically come and say, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? 
Totally innocent question. Uh, why do these fast, but, but your disciples don't? But you know from the context of the chapter that this isn't really an innocent question. This is designed to trap Jesus. Already the Pharisees, verse 7, have been calling Jesus a blasphemer. Um, already they've questioned, verse 16, why Jesus goes and eats with these tax collectors and sinners. This question about fasting is not just an innocent question about why do some do and some don't. This is an accusation. Uh, Jesus, your disciples are not holy enough. And if your disciples are not holy enough, then surely you are not holy enough either. And Jesus, the master of the wise response, gives an answer which addresses both parts of the question. He addresses the matter of fact question, why do they, why don't they? And he addresses the accusation that is really being leveled against him. On the first part, he says, the reason my disciples don't fast is because there's a new thing that has come. The reason they don't fast is because I am here. Now, fasting in the Old Testament was the only time it's mandated, the only time you're told to fast, is on the Day of Atonement. And the fast is a sign of repentance as you prepare to make the sacrifice of atonement and receive forgiveness of sins. That would well explain why John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. Because do you remember what John the Baptist was doing? John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance, preparing people for the forgiveness of sins once the Messiah comes. And so it makes sense that John's disciples were fasting as a means of showing this repentance. But now Jesus says, look, that time of preparation that John and his disciples were doing, that's come to an end. It's come to an end because I am here. The bridegroom has come. And so there's no more need to fast. It's not that fasting is unnecessary or worthless, but now is not the appropriate time. And so Jesus answers the matter-of-fact question of why do they, why don't they? Well, now it's not the right time. But also he answers the accusation in the same way. You see, the Pharisees are making the claim, Jesus, you and your disciples are acting inappropriately. You're doing what is unlawful. And Jesus bounces the accusation back on them. You claim it's us who are acting inappropriately by not fasting. Actually, you are the ones acting inappropriately. You're like the guest at the wedding who will not partake in the joy of the ceremony because they're fasting, they say. And you can imagine it, can't you? It's a bit of a trend nowadays to use fasting maybe two days a week as a means of weight loss. And you go to a wedding ceremony, you know, you've just come out of the pandemic, everybody's ready to have this feast and the celebration together, and there are two friends sat in the corner, not having anything because uh, Friday is my fast day and, uh, you know, I don't want to put on weight today. And you think, come on, it's such an inappropriate time to do it. Just, just shift your day, just get involved with the joy and the celebration of the time. There's an appropriate time to fast and there's an inappropriate time. And if ever there's an inappropriate time, it's today. And Jesus is saying, you are the inappropriate ones for not recognising the one who is here in front of you. The irony is that your fasting, if it is an act of preparation, well, you've totally missed the one that it is supposed to be preparing you for. And you're missing out on the joy of salvation that is now here in front of you. You're missing the bridegroom. And so instead of the fasting that that, that becoming uh, a means of preparing people for God's work. It become instead a measure of their own holiness, a means by which they could lift themselves up, 
become proud in their own ability to perform and to keep the rules. And in fact, by this time, the Pharisees were not only fasting once a year, they were fasting two days a week religiously. It has become a competition to assess themselves and to accuse others, to put others down, to condemn others and to glorify themselves. And then the account moves on. Verse 23. This time, uh, Jesus is going to be asked a question about the Sabbath. And the question now is slightly stronger. The question is, verse 24, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So now it's not just a question of why do they, why don't they? It's now an accusation of you're breaking the law, Jesus. Is it really against the law? Well, we'll come to that shortly. But Jesus' response in verse 25, he doesn't answer them directly. He doesn't say, well, actually, it's not part of the law, you've misunderstood. Instead, he answers by pointing them to an account of King David. What Jesus is referring to in these verses is a little situation that happened once King David had been anointed as God's king, but before he had actually become the king, because King Saul was still on the throne. And so David is basically fleeing for his life, running from Saul, who wants to kill David. And as he runs for his life, David and his men are left with no food and no shelter, no place to uh, to stay. And so David runs to the priest at the tabernacle. And David says, I need I need some bread. And David ends up taking the showbread that was in the holy place that was meant as part of the, uh, the, the religious sacrifices. And that bread was protected in God's law as being a bread that was only meant to be eaten by the priests. It was part of their provision for their family, for themselves to eat so that they would be sustained. They didn't get paid for their work in the temple, but they were able to use the resources that came uh, to the tabernacle as part of the, the worship. And instead of the priest eating the bread, the priest gave it to David. Now, why does Jesus refer the Pharisees to this account? Clearly, he wants them to think about this event that happened with David. What is his purpose? One reason that some people might suggest. They might suggest, well, look, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying it's okay for important people to break the law if they need to. I mean, come on. King David, he was going to be the king of God's people. And he was fleeing for his life. Surely he needed some bread and, okay, it's not everybody who can do it, but the king, yeah, it's okay for him. And because David was important, maybe Jesus is claiming, I also am important, and therefore it's okay for Jesus to break the Sabbath law. I don't agree with that view of what's going on. I don't think that's why Jesus is talking about uh, this account. Uh, It doesn't make sense with any other part of scripture. Uh, Never are we told in scripture that certain people can break the the laws just because they're important or just because they're the leaders. And in fact, throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, it's the leaders who have been breaking the law that are most heavily condemned. So I don't think Jesus is saying, look, it's all right for the important people to break the rules. Another suggestion that is more commonly proposed is that Jesus is saying, look, it's all right to break the law, for anyone to break the law, in certain situations. So, I mean, David was really hungry. So it was okay for David to break the law in order to take the bread. And this is quite a common proposal suggested as to what Jesus means. 
And maybe, therefore, he also means, look, yeah, I know it's a Sabbath day, but me and my disciples, we're hungry, and so we're walking through the field and we're just picking the food. And you can't begrudge us a bit of food, can you? I mean, everybody gets hungry. Some people suggest that this is what Jesus means. I don't think that's what Jesus means. I don't think that for two reasons. One is because if Jesus is saying that the law can be overruled by some greater good, well, what is that greater good? And who defines that greater good? And how do you decide whether that is a greater enough good to break the law that is in front of you? So I don't think Jesus is saying it for that reason. I also don't think Jesus is saying that because actually, in this situation, both Jesus in the field and David with the bread, the law is not being broken. The law is not being broken. There was laws on the Sabbath of not to do work. There was laws that you weren't allowed to go and reap and take in your harvest on a Sunday. But that's not what the disciples are doing. They're just picking grains of corn with their hands, rubbing them between the hands and, and eating them. They're not breaking the Sabbath laws. And similarly, David was not breaking the Sabbath law, uh, the, the laws about the bread when he ate the bread from the tabernacle. You see, the law was put in place in order to protect the provision for the priest. And when David went to the priest and asked for the bread, David didn't just rush in and take what wasn't his. David went to the priest and asked the priest for help. And the priest, out of his generosity, taking from what was already his, what the law had provided and protected for him, he took that bread and he shared it with David. It was an act of generosity. It wasn't an act of law-breaking. And that priest even was ready to stand by his actions and he was murdered by King Saul because the priest gave what was his to support David in that time of need. So the law is not being broken by Jesus and his disciples in the field. The law is not being broken by David. And so I don't think Jesus is advocating breaking the law. Instead, Jesus is showing the Pharisees, you've totally missed the point of the law. You see, for the Pharisees, the law had become like a, like a point system. It's there for its own sake. It's this standard that stands on its own. And if I keep that rule and that rule and that rule and that rule, then I can prove myself as good enough for God. And to the Pharisees, it was becoming evident, and you see this in the chapter, that their sin, their disobedience of the law in certain areas, was not mattering to them. They were brushing it aside. They were ignoring it because they were able to tick off the law in so many other areas. Mercy and compassion are irrelevant for the Pharisees. They would rather people go hungry in order that they could tick off their box of keeping the Sabbath law. Their own devotion and worship of God on the Sabbath was not a priority to them. They ignore their worship of God on the Sabbath and rather they stand out in fields looking for reasons to accuse other people on the Sabbath. But according to Jesus, he's showing them the law is not there for its own sake. It's not a a leaderboard to be climbed up. And so verse 27, Jesus goes on and says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The law is not intended to stop you eating or to make you go hungry. It's given for your good, to help you and provide for you an opportunity to rest and worship. And verse 28 links to verse 27 and what's gone before. It starts in the NIV with the word so. If you've got an ESV or other translations, you might have the word therefore. And he's linking what he said in verse 27 to verse 28. 
Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If you take Son of Man in verse 28 to mean just a reference to any human being, any person, any man, then what Jesus is saying is mankind is above the Sabbath. And that fits with what he said in verse 27. The Sabbath is made for man. Not in a way that rejects the law, that we can do away with it if we don't want to, but in a way that makes sure that the law is not put above the one that it is intended to serve. The Sabbath law is always serving man, not the other way around. But you know, don't you, that the Son of Man is not only a reference to any person, And already in chapter 2, we've seen Jesus use the term Son of Man to refer specifically to himself, the one with divine authority. And so verse 28 goes further than that, and it says, actually, the one with divine authority, that head of all mankind, he is the one that the Sabbath is serving. And if you are using the Sabbath properly, it should point you to him. You see, the Pharisees are so wrapped up in their own legalistic ways of using the law, climbing the ladder, proving themselves, that that rather than their Sabbath use pointing them towards Jesus, their use of the Sabbath was turning them against Jesus. And Jesus is highlighting this, this backwards logic in their approach to the law. It is making them, it, it is robbing them of joy in their service of God. They're missing out on the joy of the bridegroom being there with them. It leads them to accuse and condemn others in the way they seek to obey the law. It strips them of compassion and understanding for the situations and the needs of other people around them. It would even lead them to condemn their own spiritual fathers, like David. And most of all, it makes them blind to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Saviour. And that's why I've titled this sermon, The Loneliness of Legalism. The Loneliness of Legalism. What the Pharisees' legalism is doing is it's cutting them off from the people around them. It's putting them in competition with others that they can see. And yes, they've formed this little group, this band of of merry men, the Pharisees, who, who, who want to try and encourage each other in keeping the law. But really, it's not a, it's not a close fellowship. They're not united in their keeping of the law. All it is, they're they're looking for the same things in each other. And they're ready to accuse one another. And it's the kind of fellowship that only looks to put down others. And it's all the work of keeping your head above the water, proving yourself worthy and honourable. Legalism turns you against the people around you. Legalism also turns you against God. Rather than keeping God's law leading you to him, actually it turns you from him. And today, there are many who are just like the Pharisees, and always there is a temptation of us falling into the same ways of thinking as the Pharisees were using. One area of sin is overlooked and ignored because, well, that sin doesn't matter, because I've got other means of obedience, and surely this obedience outweighs my wrongdoing. It might be that your, your marriage is in tatters, but that doesn't matter because my Bible knowledge excels. I'm even a teacher in the church. I'm able to show others the right way to live. 
even if I'm not able to do it myself. Do you see how that's a form of legalism? He says that this sin doesn't matter because I've got enough points on my tally over this side to win me favour with God. My spirituality might be lacking any sort of reality. My faith is dead, I'm prayerless, uh, there is no emotion in my acts of worship. But that doesn't matter because, well, if you look at my bank account, I've got very generous standing orders that are going out each month. Uh, the kids are all turning out well in my family. I've got enough merit on this side to really make the problems on this side seem irrelevant. You see how it's a form of legalism, just like the Pharisees were doing? Maybe you're one who can't control your tongue. So often you find yourself in situations where you speak quicker than you're able to think. You're putting others down with hurtful words. But you hope that you're able to brush over them and push them to one side because of your many acts of service in the church. This sin doesn't matter because I've got enough merit on this side to carry me through. And you convince yourself that the church around you and that certainly God ought to overlook your failings because you've been obedient in so many other areas. And this is true, and it's the same sort of thinking whether you're a Christian or whether there are non-Christians who have come here today from outside the church. And you hope that their good deeds will get them through. And, and maybe if, if there is a God and if there is a heaven, he will accept me. Because, yes, although there are some failures, there are these good things that I've been able to do. Surely that will outweigh. Surely that will carry me through. It's legalism. It's using your ability to obey the law in certain areas as a basis on which to prove yourself. And one of the ways that you can tell if you're falling into this thinking of legalism is when you look at other people in the church who are stronger than you in your areas of weakness. Perhaps they're more keen in evangelism. Perhaps they're far more prayerful. Perhaps their attitude is so much more humble. Perhaps their parenting seems so much more capable. Then rather than your response being one of thanksgiving, thank you God for giving such a person to the church and being an example to me, rather your response is one of feeling unworthy. I cannot keep up to that standard. I'm not as good as them. Maybe you feel jealous. Maybe it's the other way around and you feel proud. You often find yourselves looking down on others because they're not able to perform in the ways that you do. You see how legalism is creating a wedge between you and your brothers and sisters within the church. But worse than that is it, it's driving us away from God. It's blinding us to our need of a saviour. Our unworthiness that we feel when we see the performance of others is dealt with so often by a resolve. I will try harder. I will apply this self-discipline. I will speak these things. I will read these books. I will go to these services. And it's the total opposite of what the gospel is all about. Chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is saying, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. And the more you persist in showing me your righteousness, the more you put a barrier between yourself and me, the more you prevent me from dealing with the sin that is in your heart and life. The gospel is not about offering God the best that you have. The gospel is about allowing Jesus Christ to heal your very worst. And the error of the Pharisees that Jesus is trying to show them is 
they will not admit their need. And the temptation of many Christians is so often the same. Mark ends this little section with a real powerful account. Jesus is in the temple. I'm looking at chapter 3, verse 1 to 6 now. Jesus is in the temple again on a Sabbath. They're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they're watching him closely. And Jesus knows what's going on among the crowd of the Pharisees. And in verse 4, Jesus challenges the Pharisees. He challenges them. Uh, Verse 4, I don't really think is about what Jesus is about to do. I think verse 4 is a challenge from Jesus to the Pharisees about what they are doing. Jesus is saying, in effect, here you are trying to portray a sense of being obedient to the Sabbath. But actually, what are you doing on the Sabbath? You're plotting to kill. You're looking with murderous intent. What's lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? If it's unlawful to kill on the Sabbath, what are you doing right now? Jesus is in this verse turning the situation back on themselves, getting themselves to look at themselves and their own approach to the situation. And he is, verse 5, deeply distressed at their stubbornness. And so Jesus responds by, he's going to heal this man. And I don't think Jesus heals the man just as a piece of stubbornness of his own. Yes, of course I can heal on the Sabbath. Watch me heal him. I don't think that's really why Jesus heals the man. Jesus heals the man, I think, as a powerful image for the Pharisees to see and watch. And so he takes the man with the withered hand. You can imagine it all crumpled up against his side. like It's maybe hidden in his coat or behind his back. And he gets the man to stand up right in the centre of the room so everyone can see him. And Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. Now, I ask you, which hand did the man stretch out? In your mind's eye, there's only one hand that this man has. In fact, in your mind's eye, there's only one detail you know about this man, which is that he's got a withered hand. And so when Jesus says, stretch out your hand, well, which other hand is he going to stretch out? As a reader, imagine the things in your in your mind. You put the two together and expect that he stretches out his withered hand. But put yourself in the situation, amongst the crowd, amongst those Pharisees. Consider yourself as that man who all of his life has had this impairment that most likely he's quite embarrassed about, ashamed about. Maybe there's quite a lot of stigma being attached to it. It's a, it's a judgment for sin, many would say. And so all he's ever wanted to do is hide it, ignore it, push the problem out of the way. And then here he is, put up on the pedestal in the middle of the crowd, and Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Well, he's got two hands. He's got a strong hand that's able and that's good and that's strong and that does more work than everybody else's left hand because he's only got one to rely on. Stretch out your hand, Jesus says. And now he's got an option. Does he offer his best? I can do that. Ask me another. Or does he offer his weakness? And when he takes out his withered hand, and he offers it to Jesus, he notices that Jesus has been the one who has healed him. He finds he is able to stretch it out. The weakness has gone. Jesus has taken it from him. If he'd offered his best, he would have remained at his worst. He confessed his weakness, and Jesus made him whole again. Healed him. Made him right.
Who are you like? Are you more like the Pharisee or the man with the withered hand? Are you more like the one who's coming to Jesus offering your best? Here is my performance. Here's why I am a good person. Here's what I have done to serve you, Jesus. Are you confident that Christ will accept you based on your performance? Of course, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't ever acknowledge that. You wouldn't say it in as many words. But are you betrayed that that is actually your feeling? And do you notice that when, for example, it's resentment or unworthiness or pride that you see in your relationship to others? Or in resentment against God? You don't know him as the good God. You don't delight in serving him. You don't see his law and his rule as so wonderful as we read about from Psalm 119 earlier. Are you like the Pharisee? Or are you like the man with the withered hand? You come to Jesus, opening up with your worst. You confess your sin. This is all I have. I'm broken, Jesus. Heal me. It's not the righteous that Jesus has come to call, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need Jesus as a physician, as a doctor. It's the sick. And when you offer your weakness to Christ, when you confess your sin, your wrongdoing, you will find that rather than receiving the shame and the abuse and the rejection that you would expect to receive, instead, he does his work to heal, to make right, to make whole. Who are you like, the Pharisee or the man with the withered hand? We're going to close our service by singing uh, another song. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? And I just draw your attention to the third chorus. It says, to this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever, is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's not my performance that frees me from sin. It's Jesus working in me and through me.